Everybody, it's Ned Busker. Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. Um, I am committed to just getting this recording done and having what I'm doing right now with the creaking chairs and the weird sound in a garage just be what it is. Um, that's just what I'm going to do because this podcast has been needing to get out in the world for so long. And I don't even mean for the potential that it might be for other people, I mean, for me and my compulsion to do it. And um, it just so happens that life has led us to a place in our historical timeline where every other way I've been able to show up has been (laughs) curtailed. Is that the right word? Curtailed. Um, And I've been cornered into my garage and I've been forced to, to find other ways to do what we do with You're Going to Die. And so... It's undeniable at this point for me to get this podcast in the world. And I'll speak about this a little later, but this beginning episode feels like the perfect way to do it. You know, we've had to cancel all of our shows um, in March, and I'm even still like feeling emotional just thinking about not having been able to do that with all the people and community that we've built over all these years. Um, It's March's turned out to be one of the busiest months for us. And so we're heartbroken to have canceled those events, but it's what is needed right now to, to deal with what is unfolding in the world. And, um, and so there are ways that I'm so glad and happy to be forced into my garage, actually, even though it breaks my heart, I'm here and I'm feeling another way to, be in the world and another way to offer something that will stick. You know, it's like, it's, this isn't no matter how it goes. Now the podcast exists. And so here we go. So I want to just kind of not spend too much time talking into this episode. I'm sure there'll be plenty of episodes where I talk too much. And if you know me at all, if you've been to any of the shows, you know that I talk a little bit much sometimes. And I and I hope rarely do I talk too much, but I do like to talk. I mean, even just now, I spent so long explaining how I like to talk too much. <laughs> um, it's such a fun experiment, though, doing the podcast, because it is this little, it is this little imagining. It's like your little ears are listening right now. And I'm 
I'm just imagining just you and me, me talking just in like I'm a tiny, tiny, tiny man in your ear canal right now, getting to just share and do this thing and learn how to do it and hopefully offer something up that, you know, matters to you and makes today or this moment um, livable or makes you feel inspired or more alive or maybe not alone. I think maybe most importantly that, um, you know, this thing we're going through, it's cornered us. It's cornered me into my garage, but it's cornered all of us into our, a lot of us into our, just our own spaces. And the, and the thing is, is we find in those places in our often aloneness in those places, the things that confront us that we get to escape so often. And um, we're dealing with this big global pandemic and it makes us have all these shared fears and anxieties. And then we're just in our homes alone, confronted by the ways we we relate to reality that we don't always have to sit with, that we so easily can kind of move away from or go and like heal through or avoid or whatever it is. Now at home, I'm just left facing those things about me that are only true to me and unique to me. Like, um, you know, do I matter? How can I matter? How can I show up in the world? Can I make a difference? Um, will I not matter? <laughs> um, what am I supposed to do? Why me? You know, like that stuff. Um, but we have a chance to make room for all that and make room for that personal confrontation. And like, I don't know about you, but I've just felt this very specific experience of going through the personal stuff and being faced with that hard parts of who I am and then suddenly getting total relieving perspective of where we're all at as a global community and realizing that it's not all about me, but, but allowing it to be all about me for a little bit or for a little while and then, and then letting that go or, or getting relieved of it. And then finding it again with the next like major blow of whatever it is coming out of all this. But um, I don't know about you. Um, that relief is the feeling in it together. And and even like as I speak and I imagine your little ear canals taking this in, it, it makes me feel less alone. And and I want you to feel that way. So know that you're you're not alone, and and I, and from this podcast, you know, reach out, shoot me an email, um, shoot me a message, let me know how this is for you, let me know what else you need, uh, share your stories. Um, I mean, I'm just gonna let this podcast kind of figure itself out as it goes, and right now, I just want to get this out, and so that's where I'm at. Um, and I think what's special about this first episode. Um, what I kind of referred to and referenced earlier is that this is a way to kind of share the live experience. We have this episode that's been edited and and mastered and ready to roll for uh, over a year or two, and no better time to share it with the world through the You're Going to Die podcast than uh, now when we can't do the shows. So I'm going to just stop talking and let this beautiful piece of audio do its, uh, its magic and its... Uh, it's work on you.
this is you're going to die as offering right now while we're not doing our live events where we can all gather together as community. We're sharing this episode and how it captures what we do in a live show with you at the best time we could possibly share it. Enjoy. Okay, so yeah, you're going to die. Um, all of you are. Uh, so that's just uh, an announcement. And welcome to the show. This is You're Going to Die, Poetry, Prose, and Everything Goes. This show is about death. And the format of the show is a little bit like death. You know, in the sense that it might happen anywhere at all from this live venue, let's say, to, I don't know, a tiny bedroom, or, you know, the street, or uh, a forest, you know? You, you, you know, there's no warning where it could take place. I'm going to cry multiple times this evening. I'm going to try to hold back a breaking into tears right now. I'm really, like, sad a lot and, like, have a lot of anxiety. Let's just jump to 500 years from now. I'm not sure we're going to be talked about necessarily. So in that eventuality, if we could just be honest and hold that, like make space for that, um, what are we doing here? Like what is going on right now? This is so ridiculous. This doesn't make any sense at all. What are Skittles, you know? <laughs> I wait tables uh, a little bit, and can you imagine, you know, how someone who has uh, death uh, kind of on their mind a lot, how much of a struggle it is to refill a water sometimes? <laughs> We've got this living thing going on with, like, you know, Bank of Americas and Skittles and things and, like, sidewalks. So these things are all just kind of put out there meaninglessly. They're used, but it's just crazy. And everybody's just like, well, I'm getting into life. Let's go on and do the thing and get that thing to put in the thing and digga digga ding da ding ding And you just, like, go forth that way, you know? And you just forget the revelation, you know, that's available in that it's meaningless, that it's senseless, let's say at least, and that you're going to die someday. And that there's some value there to like look into someone's face and say, you're going to die, I'm going to die. Like, what do we have to offer each other in that truth? Um, so thanks for coming. <laughs> to start off the night, everybody, please welcome to the studio, Anise Gross. I was living in New York City in September of 2001, and I was already a fairly nervous person, and then 9-11 happened. After 9-11, you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't leave Manhattan. You couldn't leave Brooklyn. All the freeways were closed. You couldn't get in your car. I tried to get on a plane. You couldn't get on a plane. All of the things I had seen, you couldn't unsee. So you couldn't unsee a woman in a wedding dress running down the street covered in ash crying. And the smell where I worked below Canal Street was not very far from where the Twin Towers were, and it smelled like sort of a burning hair smell. And everyone wore a gas mask. You'd get onto an elevator with these women in 
sort of very expensive Dior-looking suits, and they'd be wearing a thick rubber war mask. Um, and I just, my anxiety sort of spiraled out of control. I had panic attacks every day. I, I felt trapped, and I knew there was no way I could get out right away. And so I just waited until I could leave. So I decided to move back home to my father's house in Hawaii. And when you get off the airplane in Hawaii, you know, it smells nice in Hawaii and you can breathe. But I was still very afraid. And um, I moved back into my father's house and it's a beautiful house with a pool on the water. It's on a marina that's fed by the ocean and has palm trees and orchids. And it's an idyllic setting. So. I thought that it would be a really good place to recover. And it was just me and my father and our family's Tibetan spaniel, Talia. And Talia was a gift my father had given my sister Ivy for her 16th birthday. But my sister was grown up now and gone from the house, and she'd left her at home because she didn't have the heart to separate her from her best friend, um, our family cat named Princess. Talia is a Tibetan spaniel, and the breed is sort of bred to sit inside of Tibetan monks' robes. So they would sit inside their robes around their bellies and keep them warm, and they'd also keep watch. So very quiet little warm watchdogs. And there was something about Talia just her presence made it comforting to be around. And there's something about animals and the kind of languageless love that you have with them and that bond you have with them that can be much more reassuring than the bond you have with people, which is so fraught with language and misunderstanding and people trying to comfort you when you just want them to kind of shut up. It's like, you know, when something bad happens to you, everyone wants to know what they can do, but sometimes all you want them to do is just sit there and be next to you. We would hang out together most of the day in the house. I didn't really do anything besides read and sleep. And sometimes we'd bicycle around the neighborhood. I'd um, tuck her into the basket of the bike and the wire made her really uncomfortable, so I had to nest it with little blankets and sweaters. And she sort of looks like a gremlin, and she has a underbite. And so when she would hang her paws and head out the basket and we would zoom by, you know, the wind would whip her hair back and expose her underbite. And, and we couldn't really go very far. I would only bike around the neighborhood in circles. We lived in a cul-de-sac, and I just would go around and around in circles. And sometimes I would pack little snacks that we could eat. Um, and sometimes we would sit on the edge of the little bridge near the house and throw things into the water. Well, I would throw things into the water. She'd watch me. And then we'd bike down to where this 14th century stone heiau was. They unearthed it when they built the neighborhood. And it's a tiny little stone worship place where the ancient Hawaiians used to worship and would pull things down from the gods. For me, it was just a place where I could be with the mystery of being alive very easily. And it was also a place where I kind of took some solace in the fact that a lot of things had come before me and a lot of wisdom 
might be available to me in an unspoken way. I figured 45 minutes there every day was a lot better for me than going to therapy. During the same time, I had dreams every night of drowning myself in the pool. And in the dreams, I'd tie bricks to my ankles and slip into the pool at night and never come back up. And it's a secret that I carried around with me during the day, and it's something that I didn't want anyone to know about, especially my father. And so I started to tell Talia about the dreams. I mean, I sort of told Talia everything because she just listened very well. And, you know, I told her I didn't want to go that way, but that it was also the way that I was living wasn't something that I could endure. And Talia never liked to get very close to the edge of the pool. She always had a great fear of water. And I think around the same time I started to tell her about my dream, she began to become very depressed. And my suffering began to bring her down. During this time, I sort of realized that if I didn't do something that I would die and that I needed some kind of way out but I didn't really know what that looked like so I started to write short stories I had never really been a writer I mean I was good at writing but it wasn't something I thought of myself as but I started to write short stories and I wrote two short stories without ever having taken much of any writing classes and I decided to apply to graduate school so I applied to five graduate schools I had a lot of hope and thought that it was going to be my way out and then one by one the rejections came in I was devastated because I worried it meant that that was the end of me it wasn't so much that I was worried that I wouldn't go to school or that I was bummed out that they hated my short stories. I was more concerned that that it was it. That was my only way out, and now there was no way out. One day I was sitting on the couch with Talia, and the phone rang. And my father said from the other room, Anise, it's for you. And no one ever called me on the phone. And the woman on the phone said, is this Anise? And I said, yes. And she said, You've just been accepted into graduate school in San Francisco. And it was the place I'd always wanted to live. I don't even think I could say anything. Um, I was so overwhelmed. And I remember I bought a little bottle of champagne, uh, the tiny ones that fill one glass, and um, to celebrate. But it also meant that I had to leave Talia behind. And I remember when I packed up my suitcase, I told her that she'd been the best friend I'd ever known. I left for San Francisco, and, you know, I started going to graduate school, and I got better. It turns out San Francisco is a way mellower city than New York. And reports from back home were that Talia was better, too. And she'd even gotten a new friend, a little deranged chihuahua named Izzy. And I'd go back to, you know, visit at the holidays, and Talia and Princess and Izzy, they'd all be happy to see me. When I'd walk out to go back to San Francisco, she, Princess, and Izzy would be sitting in a little line at the door, 
watching the car pull out from the driveway. One day, my father found Talia struggling in the pool. He wrote it off to the fact that she was losing her eyesight and didn't know and slipped in, and she didn't know how to swim and was sinking. But the fact is, there she was, drowning into the bottom of the pool she so feared, the pool she avoided, the pool I thought I'd drown in. Then Talia went missing. My father thought maybe she'd just run away. She was always fond of running away. Or maybe a kayaker paddled by and saw how cute she was and snatched her up for themselves. My father was like, she's such a beautiful dog, I can see why a person would want to take her for their own. One afternoon, a few days after she'd been missing, uh, the tree trimmer, who only came over once every few months, was all the way up at the top of the coconut tree. And he called down to my father, hey, didn't you say your dog's been missing? There's one right now floating down the marina. And my dad couldn't bear to look, and so he had to call my sister over, who lowered herself into a kayak into the water and paddled over to her corpse, which was already floating by. My sister lifted the corpse out of the water on the back of her kayaking paddle. She placed Talia's remains, mostly bones with a tiny bit of fur left on the face, in a plastic Safeway bag and kayaked back in. Princess and Izzy watched as my father and sister dug a little hole to bury Talia in. And the next morning, Princess wedged herself in between two slats in the fence, breaking her own legs, and starved herself to death, dying just a few days later than Talia. And they buried Princess and Talia side by side under a tree in the front yard. So my sisters um, built a little lantern upon which the family wrote messages to Talia, and they lit it up and they sent it out to sea in the middle of the night. And I just remember that image, you know, of Talia, of the symbol of Talia going out into sea over this vast expanse of water, um, which was the fate that she saved me from. And I think of the sounds my father made when she died and that kind of the sounds of you know saying how much he loved her and I I feel some comfort now in that I don't know I feel comfort now in the idea that Maybe my ashes will be out at sea, but not in the way that I thought originally, like out of despair. And I don't know, I hope that someone makes the same sound for me, you know, that I had been, if I've been a good friend the way Talia was to me. ladies and gentlemen. Jonah. 
When I did drugs And ran around We were kids We owned that town We'd steal for fun And we'd get caught We would run But we wouldn't get shot Looking back, a shake with tears Same dumb crimes Same dumb fears oh. It's not the time It's not the sin It's not an accident It's the skin You know, I don't like to think about messages a lot when I do this show. I don't have all the answers. Um, I don't even have very many answers. <laughs> but I know right now that I have the wisdom of openness. <laughs> and that if I had anything to ask you is that you would open because you don't know what tomorrow holds. But you should go into it being as open as you can be. And if it's great tomorrow, then like you'll eat Skittles and it'll be awesome. <laughs> I really like Skittles, actually. <laughs> And if it's bad, then you'll open into that too because we need you to. And really, we're only here to do that for each other. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Chelsea Coleman. You want, you want the one about the stars? I mean, Leslie wanted to do something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do the one about the stars and stuff. <laughs> For you and Ned. I love the ones who love to run. There's beauty. 
yourself a new life Be free to the wind Long before the wreckage washes in Leave it for another life You're leaving for another Will you ever find yourself in the void? Will you ever be set free from the shackles you've called liberty? And be woven in by the golden thread into the crest of your kin. Long after your songs have drifted On to another life On to another life But when the earth has been If you want to stay connected to You're Going to Die, Poetry, Pros, and Everything Goes, there's a, a group on Facebook. Uh, you can also sign up on the email list. Actually, just enter You're Going to Die into Google, and pretty much all the hits for You're Going to Die will come up. The second page gets a little, <laughs> little intense. <laughs> this movement is in the, in the first page, so you don't have to go into the other stuff. Um, <laughs> And I think that's all. Um, but there's business cards in there, too, if you want to grab one before you leave that just say you're going to die. Um, just blank uh, white and just says you're going to die. And mainly I encourage people to take those and leave them around. Just random. <laughs> at the office, mainly. I'm Ned Buskirk, the host and creator of the show. Our live show was recorded at the Lost Church here in San Francisco. Get up for the Lost Church. Rachel Homburg. Hamburg. God. God damn it. <laughs> Thank you. Rachel Hamburg produced this episode. Give it up for Rachel. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. And Rob Voigt composed original music for Anise Gross's story. Give it up for Rob Voigt. <laughs> and the title track, You're Going to Die, is by Andrew Blair. Yeah. 
On the count of three, everybody. One, two, three. You're going to die. Special thanks to the Peck Foundation and their funding to help make this podcast possible. Uh, I think important to highlight, spotlight musicians right now, especially considering the state of the world and what it means to be an artist. Um, So special thanks to Chelsea Coleman um, for all the things she does, but um, for her song in this podcast. Uh, Thanks to Anise Gross. and Jake Young and Jonah um, for all their help and involvement in making this episode what it is. And uh, I'll link you up to all of their work on the podcast notes and on our website. Um, but the specialist of thanks to Scott Ferreter, um, he is so much more than a sound engineer. Um, he is so many things. And um, special gratitude for to him for helping make this podcast uh, happen. Um, And if I miss anything, like I said, I'm figuring it out as we go. If you're listening to this, remember, two things are true. You're going to die. You haven't yet. The rest is up to you. Until next time. Oh, and uh, thanks for my kids screaming in the background during that last part of the recording. Love you, kids. Bye. Bye.